We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Robin. Welcome to a new Sox Machine Podcast episode. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, May 15, 2023, as the Chicago White Sox wrapped up their season series against the Houston Astros. They played the defending world champions competitively in 2023, but they end up losing the series season series four games to three. That should be a sign that this roster can compete with the best in baseball, but instead the White Sox are 14 and 28. This 42 game start is the second worst in franchise history, only behind the 2018 White Sox. That started 12 and 30 on their way to finish 62 and 100. The 2023 squad is on pace to finish 54 and 108. So yeah, it's a terrible first quarter for the White Sox. And we'll dish out our first quarter grades. Honestly, it's easier to point out the players and staff that don't deserve an F. So we'll do that. The White Sox homestand also continues as they play the defending American League Central champ, the Cleveland Guardians, for the first time in 2023. So we'll preview that series later in the show. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, a couple weeks ago, we asked what was wrong with Luis Robert Jr. after he was benched for not hustling and telling coaches that he was banged up. Now, he's pretty much the White Sox offense. Pretty much. What, five RBIs in a row? Uh, Three homers in three games or a homer in each of the three games against Houston. Uh, Big go-ahead hit. Uh, Legs are working, covering ground and center. What's not to like? And as frustrating as that may be to say, like, where was this guy at the end of April? Or why did he have that little setback? Like, at least he's past it for now. (laughs) I guess you have to be on guard that it happens again. But for the time being, he's being great and doing everything you want and heating outfielders calling them off and calling for it on balls in the gap. Like that communication has improved. So it's not just, I think like lucky timing and the results are, um, you know, allowing him to stay engaged. Like he's doing what he needs to do as well to be the good teammate he has been in the past and just wasn't for like that weird five to seven day stretch. 
I have been giving Pedro Grafal a lot of flack, and I will continue to do so later in this show, but I will give him some credit here. Whatever conversation he had with Luis Robert, obviously is very beneficial because, and this is a bit shocking, Luis Robert's career high, a single season high in home runs is 13 in a season. Back in 2021, he's got 11. Right now, Luis Robert Jr. is on pace to hit 42 home runs this year. And his numbers have bounced back nicely. He's hitting 275 with a 335 on base percentage. He's slugging 562, so his OPS is 897, so close to 900. And ladies and gentlemen, a slugging percentage that starts with five for a White Sox hitter makes me so happy because it's been like so rare in the last couple of seasons that he is the one that's bringing the power and he's also got 11 doubles. Like, Right now, and he's played 41 of the 42 games. That might be even a bigger stat for Luis Robert. Right now, he is on pace to have a 40-40 season. 40 homers and 40 doubles. I haven't went on StatHead to see who is the last White Sox player to do that. I don't know if any White Sox player has ever hit 40 home runs no. and 40 doubles in a season. Uh, I don't, no, uh, Albert Bell. Did Albert Bell do it? Oh, he I had to. He, he had like 90-some yeah. extra base hits. So the, the greatest single season for offense for a White Sox hitter in franchise history is the only one that may have done it. Like, he is yeah, on a 48 path. 48 and 49. Or 49 homers, 48 doubles for Albert Bell. So he almost had a 50-50 season. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, Robert... He's got a chance. Now he's got to continue this level of play for the entire season in the way that he's played in the first quarter of 2023. But again, whatever Grafal and the coaching staff did with Luis Robert after that spell obviously worked. And it's gone through to him. And we are seeing the Luis Robert that we've always wanted to see, Jim, the guy that is a superstar, the guy that can help carry the team. It's just unfortunate. It feels like he's 2015 Jose Abreu right now, which, hey, he's doing all these awesome things. No one's helping. Like, where is the rest of the White Sox offense? Like, Jake Berger helped. He had a big two-run homer on Sunday, but he obviously was hurt, so he missed the first two games. Like, where's everybody else? Well, just to go back to 40-40 real quick, Frank Thomas also did 40-40, but not in one of the years you might think. 90, oh, 97? 2000. Oh, the year he should have won MVP, yes. but Jason Giambi got yeah, it. Yeah, 43 homers, 44 doubles. I thought like a younger Frank might have done it, like in 95 right. or 96, but no, 2000. He did have so 46 two- <laughs> doubles and 24 homers in 92, so he did lead the league in doubles once, but yeah. Okay, so 2000, Frank Thomas, 1998, Albert Bell. Like two of the greatest single season offensive seasons. <laughs> White Sox history. Nice like, thing about White Sox history is that, like, if you ever have to look to see, did somebody ever do that? You look up Frank Thomas, and that gets you most of the way there. <laughs> That's true. Because if he didn't do it, like nobody else did, you know, then the one Albert Bell year, the one Dick Allen year, uh, and then a lot of other also rands, but really those yeah. three are the ones you look at when you look at offensive dominance. Yeah, where's the help? Um, great question. I, I think you can you know, round down the guys who are hurt. Uh, you know, Eloy Jimenez, appendicitis, not his fault. You can say like, we can separate this malady from the other ones and say like, that's just unfortunate. Uh, Tim Anderson, also not entirely healthy, you know, still has the knee issue, which 
I might criticize the White Sox for, except with Elvis Andrews hurt, who else would play shortstop in second if not for a banged up Anderson? Like now it's, you know, you, you might have questioned it before and Andrews is healthy, but right now, like, no. I mean, Lenin Sosa, Lenin Sosa is a better idea to play second in Chicago when he's in Charlotte and pulling the ball in the air. For some reason, he can't quite pull the ball in the air when he gets to Chicago. Uh, the easy homers like Jake Berger, the, the one that Berger hits on Sunday, 91.5 miles per hour off the bat, floats gently, softly into the White Sox bullpen for a, a two-run homer. You know, that's the kind of stuff that Sosa can't quite get to because he just can't quite pull Major League pitching in the air right now. Uh, Oscar Colas, another, just kind of, kind of go around the diamond. I would say among the guys who are healthy and Grandal doesn't count, we'll get to him later because I saw your rundown and what your plans are. Like the other guys you might expect to be part of the mix who are healthy, Andrew Vaughn in a slump, Andrew Benintendi has a bat made of balsa right now. And that's kind of about it, right? Yohan Makata is back, but also we don't know if he's healthy or, you know, he's all the way back. So really, you know, Vaughn, Benintendi, Mankata, like those are the three besides Berger, who's functional, but also kind of redundant. I guess Gavin Sheets is always okay. Like Gavin Sheets is fine. I, I think we can say about Gavin Sheets that like he doesn't drive an offense the way like Andrew Vaughn can. Like the home run power isn't quite there. His home run power is more situational, I think. For, for Gavin Sheets, he's somebody who can help keep the line moving, help contribute, but not be a driving force like we've seen Robert be or like can take turns like Sheets just doesn't have that kind of juice, it seems. It is interesting that when you look at the slash line, Gavin Sheets and Andrew Vaughn slash lines are almost identical. Like Sheets has a 327 on base percentage. Vaughn has a 324 on base percentage slugging. Sheets has a 402 slugging. Vaughn has a 401 slugging. The difference is batting average. Gavin Sheets is hitting 253 while Vaughn is hitting 236. As Jen mentioned, uh, Andrew Vaughn's right now in this slump. So both of these guys have an OPS around 725. Sheets is at 729 for the season. But Sheets only has five extra base hits, four homers, one double, where Andrew Vaughn has 12 doubles, a triple, and, and four home runs. So it's a lot of singles. It's 17 singles for Gavin Sheets and then five extra base hits, which – for his stature is not exactly the ratio one would expect uh, to see from a Gavin Sheets, but uh, that's what he's currently doing offensively for the White Sox. It's just like being there on Saturday and looking at the scoreboard before the White Sox had the late rally and they end up scoring two runs at the bottom of the eighth inning to win that game, the only game they won in this series, three to one. They had 10 hits, one run. And it was just maddening. It's like so many hits, but can't score. They've stopped running completely. They're not stealing bases when they were running more often at the beginning part of the season. I think they must be afraid, and I don't blame them with the injuries that have been popping up again. It's just, it's it's back to the singles offense with the exception of Luis Robert and Jake Berger. So really the... The recent strategy right now is do whatever it takes to get on base for Luis Robert and Jake Berger and hope that they could pull through with like a two-run, three-run homer. Uh, that's the White Sox best hope offensively at the moment. Pretty much. It's all singles everywhere else. And yeah, I wrote a post about Andrew Benintendi just because I nobody's writing about Andrew Benintendi or nobody's really talking about him. Like he's so easy to ignore. Uh, which seems bizarre given that he did receive the biggest free agent outlay 
in White Sox franchise history. It just, you know, watching him like uh, on Sunday, he hit a foul ball towards section 108. And Jason Benetti said like, and Benintendi waylays the ball. And then like it hooked short of the warning track. Uh, down the right field line, like even when he hits the ball hard, it just doesn't travel. So the changes we thought he might be able to make to a swing uh, haven't really happened. And, and, you know, I don't know if it's a case where we're looking at somebody who, you know, another White Sox player who did not successfully recover or come all the way back from the injury that ended his previous season. We saw Joe Kelly last year, saw with Kelvin Herrera, just uh, hand wrist injury. You could see it sapping the power a little bit, but right now that's not there for him. And he's just somebody who, you know, settles for singles. I guess he does have 10 doubles, but nothing threatening a homer yet. Drawing the occasional walk, running a little bit, playing an okay left field, but it's just, it's replacement level right now. And, you know, that's not what the White Sox needed from the guy that they're paying five million, five years and 75 million for, because like if the White Sox do tear it down, like he's just around. Yeah. You can't really build around him. He's just going to be there. Kind of like furniture. Yeah, uh, let's go into Yasmani Grandal because I'm a bit confused in what the White Sox are doing here, Jim. So Jake Brigger comes back. They option Carlos Perez, which Perez DH'd on Saturday, and he DH'd because Yasmani Grandal was in the lineup, and then he became a late scratch because while warming up, something was barking with his hamstring. So the White Sox decided to pull him and put in Perez. Sunday, it's Savi Zavala again catching. Grandal does not make an appearance. Perez is optioned back to Charlotte. Jake Berger is now here. And with Yohan Makata at third base, Jake Berger will be, I assume, the primary DH for the White Sox for the time being. And I just have a lot of questions for the White Sox. Like, what are we doing here with, with Grandal? And they may feel, they may honestly feel like, you know, he just needs a few days off. He doesn't need to go on the I.L., I'm sorry. I'm going to be a meatball here for a moment. I don't buy that. He's a 34-year-old catcher who has miles upon miles of wear and tear on his legs, Jim. He may need it may be beneficial for Yasmani Grandal just to take 10 days off. And what drives me crazy is that you are volunteering to play shorthanded again. And for a manager that loves to empty out the bench almost every single game, This is driving me crazy that the White Sox are handcuffing themselves again because they have the hope and belief that Yasmani Grandal is going to wake up Tuesday morning and be like, you know what? I'm fine. The hamstring's perfectly fine. I can run again. You are the slowest runner in Major League Baseball. It's not about the running. You need the legs to hit for power, and you haven't been doing that. So that's why in my head it's like just put him on the IL and help yourself out and have four position players on the bench. Like, I, I just don't understand the logic here. I, I'm having a hard time following it from a White Sox perspective and how they've been handling Yasmani Grandal. I thought it was interesting on Sunday when uh, Sebi Zavala came to the plate and Pedro Grifal pinch hits with Adam Hazley versus Zavala, even though if the game somehow got to extra innings, Grandal would have to come in anyway. You know, under normal circumstances, you'd say, well, like, well, Grandal is a much you know more potent home run threat, and it's a one-run right. game. Wouldn't you want him to get on base? So to me, that means, like, they just don't want him running. Like, they feel comfortable with him doing, like, the small movements, you know, that catching involves and squatting's fine and, you know, retrieving a pop-up. Maybe he won't, you know, uh, 
tail after the runner as he goes down first base to back up a throw from uh, the left side of the infield or something like that. But it seems like they, they've rounded it down to running, uh, which is why Hazley hits. Um, you got to run to play baseball, though, Jim. Right. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> I, I, under, Oh, I understand. So like, I was curious, like, can he even catch? Like, is this a case where like, if Zavala gets hit by a foul tip, can Grandal even go in? That, like, that's what I was worried about. Like, cause they said that it was hamstring straight hamstring, uh, not related to backs, which sometimes hamstrings can be related to lower back injuries. Just, you know, the, the, the back spasms and whatnot. So they had, you know, so I was just curious, like, could he do anything baseball wise uh, to be behind the plate? And no, it seems like it's down to running, which is okay. At least we know a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I, I still question like you, whether that's helpful. And this is a case where um, just last year, watching the White Sox, just not wanting to put anybody on the injured list and, and bring that back to mind. Obviously that was a different manager. Um, they were, had a little bit of different of a training room. So you can look at that and say it's, you know, that was Tony LaRusa really not wanting to let go of his security blanket, Larry Garcia, and and you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, if Grandal just needed a couple days off, sure. But yeah, like you know, you mentioned he's a 34-year-old catcher. Like, we'll find out a lot on Tuesday. Like, if he's not starting on Tuesday, then yeah. I mean, first of all, you lose the retroactivity of being able to, you know, backdate his injured list stint uh, to the weekend, or at least, you know, to, to Friday. Um, but you also just, you know, lose a couple days of having that option to have like a better bat to come into a, a, a game in a uh, ninth inning instead of Adam Hazley. Like that's, that's, that's where the shorthandedness comes in. So yeah, I, I'm with you in terms of just, I wish I could trust Griffal and just the White Sox in general more about how they handle these injuries. Like Tim Anderson, I would have similar, um, you know, misgivings about, except for now with no middle infielders. Like, yeah, he has to play. While the White Sox are in crisis mode, he has to play. And if, you know, it turns out that by the end of the May, they're still 15 games under 500 and they're 12 games out of first, then sure. Start thinking about 2024 after that and, and start resting guys for either the trade deadline, like see, you know, if it can get Anderson healthy for like late June, early July, when you can start to market them versus, you know, trying to get, you know, meaningless wins in mid-June that ultimately, you know, he might not be around for if he hurt something again. Uh, but yeah, very hard to trust the White Sox right now. And, you know, the weird thing to me is like Grandal is having a good, like if you told me the White Sox were going to be this bad, I figured like, oh, Grandal was toast and the White Sox couldn't do anything about it. He's actually been okay. And it's, the thing is, I don't mind having him on the injury list, like you said, just to rest him because like, I don't want to look this gift horse in the mouth necessarily and say like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, given how done he looked last year, uh, you know, given that he bounced back at all, given that he's had this nice little rebound and not only is he hitting okay, but he's also not a liability behind the plate, which I thought he might be given the way the base running has been opened up. Like I thought he'd been, he'd be exploited by now, but he's hanging in there like slightly below average, but not terrible. Like he's doing great. So yeah, I'm, I'm invested in just having him healthy for the long haul. And given how Grandal used the entire first half last year as a rehab stint, and like he wanted to push through it, and Tony Larusa didn't stop him. Like there was no adult in the room saying like you're hitting like garbage. Sit down. We got guys who can do what you're doing right now. Uh, it does bring back flashbacks to just uh, who's actually in charge. I, I feel like the White Sox are slightly better in this regard, but 
when now that they're this far under 500 and this desperate to get back into it, I do wonder like if they will have the blinders on to we need, you know, we've lost Eloy. Uh, you know, we, we just lost Mankata for a little bit. Now he's back. Like we can't afford anybody else. Uh, and so anybody who doesn't have to go on the injury list because their organs haven't uh, uh, betrayed them, uh, they have to stay on the 26 man roster. That, that's kind of what I'm worried about here. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. But I think if he comes back Tuesday, starts that incident, I'll be um, I'll say like, OK, that made some sense. Glad they got through it. But Tuesday's a big day. Tuesday's a big day. Jim and I are going to hand out our first quarter grades after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, it's time to grade the Chicago White Sox 2023 first quarter. And boy, again, like we mentioned the intro, and I posted on Twitter, it's just a lot easier to list the players who don't get an F. There's a lot of players and staff that deserve an F. And I could see the argument that some are making that some players should get an incomplete. Like, Yoan Makata should get an incomplete grade because he's missed 30 of the 42 games because of his back injury. That I can buy. Uh, some want to point out, like, the coaching staff, maybe should get an incomplete grade. No, I'm not buying that. So we're going to break it down from the offense, starting pitchers, bullpen, and the coaching staff. And we're going to point out who doesn't get an F. If we list a player, they don't get an F. If we don't list a player, just assume they have an F grade and they are failing. So, Jim, let's start with the offense. Obviously, Luis Robert should not be getting enough in his first quarter. What grade would you give Luis Robert? And does anyone else in this offense also not get enough? I would go with a, in terms of performance, in terms of what he's on pace to do, I'd give him an A. In terms of overall stability, I would give him a B just because of that weird yeah, you know, like we talked about, that weird sojourn into being a problem. You know, you got easy you know, reactionary headlines saying the White Sox need to trade him. The White Sox need to sit him down. Like, no, not really. But just it was a weird little blip that makes you a little bit uh, you know, worried that if the White Sox do tear it down or if they do, uh, you know, just you know, go further into the toilet and other guys, you know, I guess 
stop responding to the coaching staff or Bell or what have you. Like, will he be engaged the whole year or will he be in communication the whole year? Hope so. But that's like really the only thing I can see like grading against him. He's not like a perfect player, but his production for Robert's flaws are basically as close to perfect as you can get. So I, I think, you know, especially the stage in his career, given that he's still building up reps, like every, you know, every year has had a different injury getting in the way. Like this is the first year, like you said, playing in every game, mostly healthy for every game. So he's looking the way I want him to under the circumstances. So I'm going to say like a B, but that's just, you know, if you can put that weird little blip behind him, then I think by the time we're doing this at the halfway point, uh, it'll have been forgotten about and just you you can remove that from the record. Like if you strike the worst and best grade, you know, when you go to the, uh, uh, you know, the evaluation period and say like, what'd you do in the middle? Like that would be the worst grade you kick out and say like, uh, that was just a bad week for you. Sorry. Yeah. According to fan graphs before Sunday's game, Luis Robert was already at one and a half war on fan graphs, meaning that he's on pace for like a five plus war season in 2023. He's at two on B ref. Wow. So Luis Robert is probably the White Sox all-star representative. Maybe him and maybe Lucas Giolito. We'll see in how it, it shakes on the starting staff. But yeah, I mean, again, Luis Robert, after the first quarter, on pace for a pretty monster offensive season. One player I think that doesn't deserve enough and has been a savior at times for the White Sox offense, especially at home, Jim, has been Jake Berger. I wasn't yep. excited. He's my number two for me. I-, I was not expecting him to have this type of start. I mean, I know you're all about the RBI to home run ratio, and honestly, it's mm-hmm. not great for Jake. 16 RBIs to eight home runs, but the eight home runs have been so needed for this White Sox offense. He's second in the team in home runs. And this is another player that wasn't on the opening day roster that has been one of the better performers for the White Sox to start the 2023 season. And before Sunday, his weighted runs created plus is at 146, which is pretty impressive. And I'm hoping to see more Jake Berger, especially in the second quarter of this season, going into the first half, just to see if he can maintain this type of run. Like, Overall, I would give him a B, but the fact that he wasn't on the opening day roster when we thought he could have been, and he joins this team when Makata gets hurt, and he's putting up these type of offensive numbers and providing the power that this lineup sorely needs, that's pretty impressive from Jake Berger. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. I would give him a B just because of, you know, the... He can be pitched to, and, and you know, he, he still has some holes in his swing. Um, not a, you know terribly effective player defensively, although he has improved defensively. Like he, he's not the, he's not the butcher. He was last year, like routine plays. He's making them all uh, plays like one step to his left, one step to his right. Like he's gloving. It's not clinking off him the way it did last year. So I think he's made strides with his reaction time. You can still see the difference between like balls. Moncada can get to and balls that Burger can get to, to where like you don't confuse the two. You never confuse the two, but he's made improvements uh, you know, his slugging percentage starts with a six. <laughs> it's a, mm-hmm. uh, and you're talking about like eight homers and what, like 80, 81 plate appearances, something like that. Like he's, you know, 
the for people who don't know, like I I think when a player has like fewer than three RBIs per homer, I think it's like an ugly ratio, kind of like the Joey Gallo, like when he hit twenty homers and driving forty, it just like it looks ugly in the back of a baseball card. Where if somebody's doing like three or four or five to one, it looks pretty to me. Like I find that aesthetically pleasing. And so Berger doing eight and sixteen, not so much. But when those eight homers are over eighty plate appearances, not like say one hundred and fifty. Uh, you can forgive that. That's a lot of impact. That's a, that's a case of like, well, you hit him, just nobody's on base when you hit him. Uh, just the small sample he's working with. So no, I will take I will take one homer every ten plate appearances from anybody, regardless of how many RBIs it's contributing per homer. So yeah, he's he's been a uh, a little bit of a revelation in terms of just the strides he's been able to make and. It does remind you that he still is kind of a prospect in the sense of just how much time he lost to rupturing both Achilles and then the pandemic season. Like he did not have a traditional run up. So I always want to like leave him some room to improve beyond what his age and what his like physical skill set says he might be able to do just because like he's still learning. Like he lost a lot of learning reps along the way. And as long as he's healthy and like, uh, the oblique thing worried me. And then he bounced back from the oblique came, you know, first game back, hits a two run Homer. Like, great. <laughs> like even, even that can't knock him off course too much. So I like this, this version of burger is like a much stabler player, both in the field and then at the plates. And even like a minor injury, a minor nuisance injury hasn't thrown him off course the way I thought it might like even last year. Yeah. Burger's ISO is approaching 400. <laughs> Everything that he hits is like, an extra base hit for Jake Berger. Going to a macro look here, how would you grade the White Sox offense overall? I know we wanted to point out Robert and Berger because let's let's try to be a little optimistic here in this first quarter. That's been disastrous. They deserve shoutouts. But when you look at the White Sox offense, like how would you grade the entire unit? I would say pretty much. Uh... It feels like, an, you know, we want to say F. I might say a D just because they're not, Yeah, it's not so much like what they are and aren't doing. It's just a matter of like the piece is not fitting. Uh, yeah, it's not so much, produ- if you look at production, like various categories, they're not like, in a lot of cases, not the worst. They have some worst tendencies, but like in terms of power, they're kind of uh, back half, but not the worst. And, you know, slugging percentage are not the worst and so on and so forth. Just the pieces don't fit. So like, I would say overall, like they're, you know, when you look at the offense, they're, they're, you know, I would say that Andrew Vaughn's not an F. Gavin Sheets is not an F. Tim Anderson's probably not an F. I would give Yohan Makata an F just because, like, he had to stay healthy this year. Like, that's part of you know, him being around for the money he's being paid is being available. And given that he's not healthy, like, you know, it's he's not giving the White Sox what they needed. Like they needed him to provide the left-handed juice. They needed him to provide some athleticism. They needed to provide some defense. He wasn't around to do it. And it's, you know, it's kind of his fault, or at least it's not, you know, it's, you know, being healthy is a skill. I think for Mankata, like he hasn't had that skill. So I would hold that lack of skill against someone in terms of evaluating what he brings and also going into next year, uh, what he hasn't brought uh, in the past. And I would say like, just, being able to play uh, a lot of games in a row at the peak of his powers is something he can't do. So that's why I would say he's an F. Uh, if he somehow plays the next quarter of games without impediments and 
looks like the guy who looked like he uh, was going to have a rebound season in his first week, then I could see just like with, uh, you know, Robert's bad week, I could see looking at Makata's first quarter and saying like, we gave him an F, but you can, we'll weight the second quarter a lot more heavily than we did the first quarter, just because the games are different. But right now, it's like when he's not around, that's an F to me. You could, I think you use that same argument then for Tim Anderson. Like, I know that was a... F- he just played a little bit more. That's why I'd say, like, I'd lift him maybe D. Because he, he's he been... He, like, almost twice the plate appearances. Okay, that's fair. I mean, Tim Anderson's not hitting. I mean, yeah. I know he overslid the bag at second base. He he does not have an extra base hit at Guarantee Rayfield this year. Playing okay defense, though. Playing okay defense, but a D is very fair for Tim Anderson. Uh, right now, the White Sox rank 24th. They're tied with the Miami Marlins in Team OPS in, in Major League Baseball. So I, I'm with you that I think that ranking, they're ahead of six other teams in Major League Baseball when it comes to Team OPS. That I'm fine giving the White Sox offense a D. I don't know how to grade Andrew Vaughn. Like... It screams to me a C, even though he does have a really high RBI total. And on the playbacks, I've been using this player comp. And I know not everybody gets a chance to hop in during our watch parties, along with our friends from the 108 on playback.tv slash socks machine. The comp that I have for Andrew Vaughn, the more I watch him, is Lyle Overbay, the former Milwaukee Brewer, Toronto Blue Jays first baseman. And the thing about Lyle Overbay is, he was a productive offensive player, but he did it with doubles. Like he would hit 15 to 20 homers, but he would have 40 plus doubles in a season. And I just feel like Andrew Vaughn, he's a doubles hitter. He's not a home run hitter. He's got four homers. He's got 29 RBIs, but he's got a ton of doubles this year. But his slash line, I mean, his slugging percentage is in the low 400s and yeah, we know how bad Jose Abreu is, and Abreu did not look good this past weekend in Chicago. And it was it was kind of yeah, sad. If I'm an Astros fan, I would be very, 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 very concerned about what is going on with Jose Abreu, especially the money and the years that the Astros threw at, at Jose Abreu. But Andrew Vaughn, offensively, is not even middle of the pack when it comes to major league first baseman. So. He's not meeting draft hype. He's not providing the home run power. That's suddenly coming from Jake Berger. I'm okay if he's Lyle Overbay, but then I have to set my expectations lower in who Andrew Vaughn is, and then it just makes all these conversations we had the last couple of years debating if you could trade Andrew Vaughn, and it's like, well, you don't get anything these days for the Lyle Overbays. You just wait until they hit free agency and you throw $10 million at them for a season to be mercenaries. Like... So I don't know how to grade Andrew Vaughn. Maybe maybe C is the way to go, but there's some things that I'm impressed by Andrew Vaughn, Jim, and then there's just a lot of blah. Like, he's very meh to me. Yeah, I think the thing with Vaughn is, like, I would give him a C to balance, like, the production, like, the until this past weekend, the production with runners in scoring position has been excellent. Like he's been uh, making the improvements in that regard and making the improvements against the slider, which we stressed uh, before the season, like he's made some strides and yeah, nobody, nobody's really coming close to him except for Robert with his late surge in terms of just producing runs. So he's been doing that. However, like when you do see the 0 for 12 um, 
weekend come up, it does remind you that he has a history of fading. And, um, you know, whether it's September and August or whether it's just, you know, he has the uh, back injuries that have come up here and there. Like he's another guy who just, we haven't seen him play an effective 162 game season or effective six month season. So if he's Lyle Overbay at the end of the season, that's fine. But if he's Lyle Overbay now and he gets tired towards the second half of the season, then that's a problem. So like, I I wish he were producing a little bit more now to cushion against one of his late season fades that drags his numbers down more towards that Overbay uh, territory that we're talking about. So that's what makes me a little bit apprehensive about, you know, trying to put a label on him is that he's shifted forms. And when he has an 0 for 12 and, and, you know, just could be a terribly timed slump, who knows, maybe he was trying to, uh, you know, establish his claim on first base with Jose Abreu in the same park and uh, just wasn't uh, quite, uh, he lost his timing, lost his uh, play discipline, got, got a little bit over his skis and just, you know, has to recenter himself in the off day will do that. But uh, just... That's one thing that's making me nervous about handing the position over to Vaughn was his tendency to fade and disappear late in seasons as the grind got to him. So that's what I'm watching going into the second quarter is like it's a C based on, you know, I would give him a B for the timing of his production and like a C minus for how I feel about the stability of it. Kind of, that's kind of like, you know, grading pitchers on uh, by F war or B war. Like B war talks about runs allowed. Uh, Fangraphs talks about FIP, which is runs they should have allowed. And, you know, for Vaughn, if you're grading him that way, like I would give him a, you know, B on what happened and maybe a C minus in terms of how good I feel about him sustaining that production uh, over the course of the rest of the season. All right. So that's the, anyone else you want to shout out for the White Sox offense before we move over to the pitching staff? Uh, you know, Grandal, I think, is a C, uh, especially lowering the expectations for him in the fourth year of a four-year contract for a 30-something catcher. Like, he feels like a C. Sebi Zavala just not, is not providing what he provided last year. His OBP starts at the one. <laughs> That's enough. Uh, Hanser Alberto, I would give him a C as well. Like, he's had some moments. Like, we've seen, like, you know, Sosa, Gonzalez, uh, you know, even Andrews, like we've seen them struggle so much that like Alberto, as much as we, you know, had apprehensions about him entering the season as a Griffal favorite, a history of being replacement level. Like right now he's producing enough to be rosterable when nobody else is. So I feel like that's a C another one where I don't feel great about him sustaining that, but for the first quarter, like he did what he had to do to be on the bench. All right. So let's move over to the white Sox starting pitching. Lucas Giolito, in our preseason predictions, I felt like Lucas Giolito, because of the contract year, will be the best performing White Sox starter after the first quarter of the season. I know that the Astros jumped on him early on Sunday's loss where the first three hitters all scored, and all of a sudden the White Sox are at a 3 to nothing hole, and Giolito ends up giving up four runs. But he did get through six innings for the White Sox at a seven straight Starts for Lucas Giolito, where he's gone at least six innings this season. I don't know if I want to give him like an A or A minus. I'm comfortable giving Lucas Giolito a B plus, but by far, Jim, he has been the best performing starting pitcher for the White Sox. Yeah, I think B plus is good. I think, you know, I would save A for somebody who would get Cy Young votes, like maybe like a, you know, sixth through 10th place finish in a Cy Young ballot, which is what his standards were 
before last season. He's not quite there yet. Uh, there is room to improve, but the stability he's brought to the rotation being the um, mainstay that he was in those years and delivering the six innings with relative ease, the way he's doing it, throwing strikes, not getting crushed too much. Uh, the strikeouts aren't maybe what he was used to, but he's doing better uh, with mixing in a slider, getting weaker contact and keeping people off his changeup to where he's not so predictable. So he's made the improvements he needed after last year to be, you know, somebody who will get a nice paycheck in the offseason, assuming he stays healthy the rest of the year. Dylan Cease and Mike Clevenger, are we thinking C's here? Mm. For Clevenger, I think a C just because of the standards. Like if we're grading on a curve, Clevenger gets a C because he's, you know, at the end of the first quarter, he's still getting starts and you still feel like, yeah, you should keep getting starts. You know, the, the, the bottom has not fallen out. He's had some wobbles here and there. If a lefty heavy lineup faces him, you don't feel good about him getting out of the fourth inning, but you know, 479 ERA, um, you know, making every start so far, throwing five innings per start, like that's fine for a fifth starter. So I would give him a C. I would give Dylan Cease, I think a, C minus D plus because of those expectations, like going from runner up to, uh, in the Cy Young to nearly a five ERA, uh, not good. So I feel like given how much he needed to produce in order for the White Sox to fulfill their vision, he's, I wouldn't say he's as far from it as anybody on the roster from their expectations, but he's close. You know, for somebody who's been healthy the whole year, I think he's close. Baseball reference has a stat ERA plus for pitchers, very similar to weighted runs created plus four position players we often refer to. Uh, Mike Clevenger's at 94, so he's 6% below league average on the pitching front. Dylan Cease is at 92. Cease is 8% below league average after the first quarter. That that surprises me. Uh, Lance Lynn, F. I, I, mm-hmm. don't, I don't think we need to debate that. He's got to improve greatly. Yeah, runners at the stretch, like, you know, uh, runners on base from the stretch. Like, that's really what's jumping out to me. Yeah, you mentioned on Bernstein and Holmes, and I repeated it as well on uh, Hit and Run on Sunday on 670 The Score. I couldn't believe that when you pulled that stat. Opposing hitters are hitting 420 against Lance Lynn in the stretch. Like, that's that's prime for the, the sports bettors, and I know not everybody gambles, but that's prime live betting time is that if Lance Lynn walks someone, immediately live bet that the team's going to score a run. I mean, allowing opposing hitters that 420 against you out of the stretch is, yeah, that's why he gives up big innings. And But he can still, if he doesn't allow a base runner on, then that's how he could still go five innings for the White Sox. But yeah, that's why he's got a 7.51 ERA. It's just incredibly bad. Incredibly bad. Michael Kopech. Jim, I feel like in the offseason, we're going to have a conversation whether or not Michael Kopech's a starting pitcher. Right now he is because the White Sox just don't have any depth. I I think Mm -hmm. we're back to the conversation again. The White Sox don't have enough starting pitchers to get through a week in Charlotte right now in AAA, which is just embarrassing. I'm sorry. It's so embarrassing for a baseball organization that you don't have enough pitching depth to get through a week in AAA. Like, come on, guys. you got to be better than this. But because there's no depth, Michael Kopech has to remain a starter but Jim, there's just so many red flags here from Michael Kopech's season that 
I'm not particularly sure what direction you go to. This is like the opposite of the Chris Sale debates we had all those years ago where the White Sox should have made him a starter because he was pitching so well. And Michael Kopech was pitching so well in 2021 that it's like, oh, you know, give him some starts. Let's see if this carries over. Well, two years later, it's like, oh, you know what? Maybe that's the best version of Michael Kopech. Or maybe that's the best use of Michael Kopech is being a reliever. Like, what are your thoughts after the first quarter from what you've seen from Kopech? Yeah, going back to the idea of, you know, baseball reference wins above replacement versus fan graphs. Right now, Kopech is replacement level. Uh on baseball reference because it goes off ERA runs allowed or not ERA it goes off off of RA runs allowed and right now he's at 5.74 Fangraph Fangraphs goes off FIP that's at 7.30 because his peripherals are so awful like he's walking guys he's giving up homers not striking out a ton like that's like the trifecta of doom uh, for a pitcher so the fact that he has a 5.74 uh, ERA suggests that he's lucky uh, and when you watch him pitch like Steve Stone was raving about, no, I would say raving. That, that's an overstatement. But he was trying to be optimistic about Kopech's stuff, saying, like, if he has this kind of stuff, you know, he should have better days ahead of him right now. He's kind of pulling the fastball too much, but, like, the fastball's got jumped. The slider's located fine. Uh, yeah, I looked at it like, well, he's trying to power the fastball past everybody and overthrowing it because that's, like, his put-away pitch. The slider is not a good pitch right now. The curveball is not a good pitch. Like, they're very soft breakers. Uh, when I see him thrown for strikes, like they spend a lot of time uh, in the zone and, and without that kind of late breaking movement, you know, sometimes like they spend a lot of time in the zone and then dart away his, you know, have more of a gentle tilt to them. And when he hangs them, they're just so they're, they're so fat. <laughs> and and uh, uh, it's almost like, you know, playing like the show or something like that's like a glowing red ball for a hitter. Like, Oh, uh, just uh, do a crow hop into that swing because it's going to go 600 feet. Um <laughs> that's kind of what it looks to me. It's like he's a one pitch pitcher right now. And he hasn't been that in the past. That's I think what makes it tricky is like when he's a two pitch pitcher, when he's got his fastball and he's got a slider, he doesn't really need a third pitch to be an okay starter. Like having a third pitch would make him like a number two or number one. Uh, if he somehow had three pitches working, but if he has two pitches and then like a third one, he can occasionally show that's like number three, number four, and every team can use a number three or number four starter. So I don't think he moved into the bullpen for that. But right now, with only his fastball, it's kind of like Reynaldo Lopez. That's that's kind of who he reminds me of. Reynaldo Lopez after like his one good season in the rotation. To where like fastball is there. If he's locating it, he'll get through five innings okay. Uh, but if it's not, he can't really pitch backwards. Uh, he doesn't really have another way to get hitters out. And that means he just has to get lucky. And Kopech has not gotten lucky, but he's also gotten lucky in the sense that his ERA is like a run and a half lower than his FIP, even though his ERA is, is 5.74. So, yeah, nothing about this feels good. Um, but like you said, like this is going to be an experiment the rest of the season, seeing if he can improve that slider enough to be a back to what it was, being a weapon. And if he can have two weapons... Uh, he has the stamina and the ability to sustain velocity long enough to start. But if, as long as he only has one pitch, that is not a starter. Let's move over to the White Sox bullpen. Uh, the White Sox starting staff is 24th. The starting pitchers are in ERA. So that I think that puts them in like D territory uh, to start the, the first quarter of the season. There are other pitching staffs that are much worse, but the White Sox starters they should be pitching a lot better than this uh, and they need to pitch a lot better than this. if they're going to turn this around. 
Uh, the White Sox bullpen. Second worst ERA in Major League Baseball. Only the Oakland A's have a worst, worst performing bullpen than the White Sox. Even though the White Sox relievers are starting to show some signs of turning things around. But after the first quarter... Other than Gregory Santos and Keenan Middleton, and I, you could throw Joe Kelly in there. Joe Kelly's been throwing well as of late for the White Sox. Anyone else that you would not give an F to out of the White Sox bullpen, Jim? Graveman's been fine. Like, not great. No, not good, but fine. And getting better. Like, the arrow seems to be pointing up. He seems like... He's figured out a little bit different of a pitch mix this year to get away from being like the true ground baller he was because that sinker wasn't quite working for him. So he's found some new wrinkles to adjust. So I would give him like, I think, a C uh, with the possibility for better. I'd give Kelly like a C too because his innings have been really good, just like with Mancata, like availability has been an issue, uh, especially the way he hurt himself, uh, pulling a groin, running in from the bullpen during a bench-clearing brawl. Like I would hold that injury against him. Uh, that's not a bad luck, uh, you know, getting hurt because he was, you know, um, actually doing his job. <laughs> so I would say, you know, that's, that's one where you can definitely, uh, you know, impugn him with that injury. But since he's been back, especially since he's been back from paternity leave, uh, almost like a perfect reliever. So I would feel like that's, you know, they're both C's right now and, and with the arrow pointing up. So I think those two guys are there, but everybody else, um, you know, Lopez, Lambert, Bummer, um, trying to think if there's anybody else who have been fixtures. Some other guys have been jettisoned. It's the it's the road it's the it's the turnstile, right? It's the rotation yeah. spot. Yep. So yeah, everybody else who you know might have been fixtures are no longer like Jose Ruiz and Jake Diekman are no longer there. So yeah, those are F's. But I think yeah, that, that's kind of what we're looking at. Is it's an F heavy bullpen, uh, especially factoring in that two guys have already been DFA'd, who you figure might be there for the full season. I don't understand how Grafal, we're going to get to him in a moment, handles this White Sox bullpen and the decision-making that they do. But moving forward, if they want a better second quarter, they got to keep it really simple. Your four best relievers are Gregory Santos, Keenan Middleton, Kendall Graveman, and Joe Kelly. Those are the guys that need to be pitching high leverage. I'm sorry. You gave Ronaldo Lopez a shot. He's appeared in 19 games. He's got six home runs allowed. Uh, 24 strikeouts to eight walks is pretty good at 16 and a third innings, but 20 hits allowed and allowed in 15 earned runs. His ERA plus is 55. He's 45% below league average, and his ERA is above eight for the season. I'm sorry, Raylo. You got to be in low leverage situations like Aaron Bummer. Allow me to make one defensive Lopez. Uh, uh, mind you, I don't feel like attached to him or anything, but in terms mm -hmm. of like, I feel like Grafal has warped Lopez's numbers a little bit because he had Lopez coming in against the team's middle of the order every single time. Like he was not the closer. He has not named a closer this year, but uh, when the closer was facing three, four, five, Lopez was the closer. When three, four, five came in the eighth, Lopez faced them in the seventh Lopez faced them. So he's always gotten the hardest assignments. The degree of difficulty has been very high, especially against good teams. So like if you wanted to make Lopez look bad, that's the way you do it is by not giving him a normal assortment of hitters. Like sometimes you face the eight, nine, one, sometimes you face the five, six, seven, but no Lopez is getting like the toughest assignments against good teams every single time. And that's, I think a way to make him look ordinary or worse in a hurry. So I think Lopez can be better in the second quarter. 
if he, you know, gets more standard usage, give him the seventh inning. Like I would say work backwards, give, you know, if you're going to try to arrange it in a way like a standard seven, eight, nine, um, you know, obviously some games might be a situation where you might want Joe Kelly coming in the seventh because the bases are loaded or something. Uh, but, you know, working backwards, standard leverage, uh, you know, order, I'd have Kelly, then Graveman, and then probably Lopez and Santos, because I think Santos just a little bit too, or actually I would say Middleton. I would say Middleton and then Lopez and Santos, uh, you know, either or just because Santos, like I like what he's done so far, especially his lack of experience, like given where he is, uh, you know, in his career, doing a nice job so far. I just think he's a little bit hittable. Like I think that sinker is not a, you know, as hard as he throws, the sinker is not much of a pitch for him in terms of missing bats. So I think he needs to work on that a little bit. Uh, and just the, the, the bats can find him. I think Lopez misses bats a little bit better. So I would like move Lopez into that Santos Middleton territory and see if just facing a more normal assortment of hitters and, and, and talent from the offense might make him like, oh yeah, he's a good reliever again. Not a great reliever. Uh, you know, not somebody who, you know, should be getting $15 million a year from any major league team uh, based on the usage he was getting from Griffal in the first quarter, but a good reliever. Quickly, the White Sox coaching staff, what grade would you give them? Uh, you know, I think part of it's, yeah, I do side with people who say incomplete because like it is a continuation of what the White Sox look like under Tony La Russa. And so, you know, I'm, I want to give them an F, but also want to say like, you know, I don't, I don't want to give like, I, I want to tell like Rick Hahn, like, no, it's talent, focus on the talent, ignore the coaching staff, you know, overhaul this talent here. And, and Jerry Reinsdorf specifically said, overhaul your front office. So the front office can overhaul the talent. Um, so I don't want to put too heavy of a grade on the coaching staff, but yeah, based on how it's looked, um, and how far away they are, like, I would just say it's an F like if Ethan Katz were gone, like, yeah, you know, he's probably a replacement level pitching coach. Um, you know, Griffal like has not distinguished himself in any way. Oh, did you see the quote from him in the Paul Sullivan, uh, column? I missed it. Oh, it's. You know, you know how we've talked about, like, I know the 108 guys, the Beef Loaf was talking about, like, how Griffal said he loved music but couldn't name a band. Yeah, he couldn't name a Fleetwood Mac song. Yeah, I kind of, like, had to wrestle Fleetwood Mac as a favorite band out of him. And then when name a song, he said he couldn't name one. Here's another quote that kind of backs that up in terms of just, like, not being able to get a handle on him in the person. He's telling Paul Sullivan that he doesn't, uh, really pay attention to the standings. Can't tell you how far his team is, you know, specifically back because he's too focused on the task at hand. Uh, you know, Sullivan said he didn't believe him. And Sullivan wrote, in this day and age, how could anyone in baseball avoid knowing approximately where they were at? Doesn't Griffal ever log on to the internet? I have not, he said. On the internet? I don't even come close to looking at the internet, let alone social media. So... This reminds me of a conversation we had when I went on a rant about Rick Renteria saying something very similar during the rebuilding years of the White Sox that Renteria did not pay attention to the standings because that was not the focal point for the Chicago White Sox. And to your credit, you called me down and made the case, Jim, that Renteria is right. It wasn't about wins and losses. It was about individual performances. This was back in 2019. 
and it was about how these this new core would be developing. That was a that was bigger than the wins and losses for the White Sox. Now in 2023, when you're supposed to be contending, mm-hmm. and now you're openly admitting you don't go on the internet. But that come on, who doesn't go on the internet? It's just the sentence. I don't even come close to looking at the internet. It's like who says that? How? You, do you not go? Do you not email? Do you not have a phone? Does he? Does I, he have a flip phone? I bet he has a flip phone. I bet Pedro Grafal has a flip phone. Does he text with T nine? I hope so. Remember those days, texting yeah. blindly. Uh, yeah, that's okay. James Fegan, uh, if you're if you're listening, tell us what Pedro Grafal's cell phone looks like. Yes, we need to know now. Is it a car phone? We need to. Is it a car phone? We need to know, James. This is your task Tuesday <laughs> when you meet with Grafal. Ask what kind of phone he has, because I don't. Yeah, I just don't buy the, it. Yeah, I don't even come close to looking at the internet. Little like social media, sure. Like I don't get why anybody in a prominent position in baseball has a Twitter account, or looks at mentions. I don't get why like anybody searches their name uh, if you're in that position. Like why would you ever do that? Uh, I don't get it. So I like Chris Sale. I've always admired for not having a social media presence. Uh, it's allowed him to be a weirdo and a very successful one um, and, and just, you know, isolate himself from everything that, you know, he might get blowback for. Um, you know, he's been very successful. And I think part of it's just because he's a little bit of a freak and he understands that and realize like, oh, being on Twitter or having an Instagram page would do nothing for me. So, uh, you know, I'm going to continue like being successful the way I know how. But like, so I understand that second part, let alone social media. Sure. I, if I were Pedro Grafal, I would not look at anything either. I would have, that's what agents are for, uh, to tell you like what you need to know in terms of what fans have said, a good opportunity for PR, et cetera. But I don't even come close to looking at the internet is like, like I, I'm trying to get a feel for the person. And that strikes me as like, man, you're just like Terry Francona, like you, to, to look at successful managers, Bruce Bochy's another one, like they have people skills. They have like, you know, Terry Francona, very relatable about his, you know, his personal health issues, his klutziness, his, his eating habits, et cetera. Like he's a little bit like a, um, uh, Kevin Malone on the office, like in terms of just, uh, a hapless klutz, uh, type situation. It's very endearing. You know, he's very successful, but also just like he, uh, he has no shame in terms of telling you about just like the various foibles in his daily life. And just, it makes him very relatable, very human. And you understand like, well, you know, normally somebody who, you know, seems that inept, uh, you know, would not be the guy you think is a brilliant manager, but you know, it is a way to connect to people and disarm. It's very disarming when he, you know, talks about this, like he's a, you know, going to be a hall of fame manager. And he's talking about like how he, uh, you know, spills you know, coffee all over the notes because he's too nervous to give a speech. Like, sure. You know, that's, you know, it's disarming. It's a way to relate to the person immediately. You drop your guard and you say like, I can relate to this the guy person to person, even though like he's, you know, his status is very lofty. And, you know, if I'm a player who's, you know, just breaking the league and I'm not like, you know, that's probably a way to trust him. Griffal, like, you know, I'm sure he's better at relating to players than he is to the media, but man, he is just <laughs> stiff. Like, and just, yeah. And, and that, that worries me just in terms of like, you know, it's not going well. And I think part of it is just, he's so stiff. Yeah. I don't even Go on the internet. I don't even come close to looking at the internet. Like if he said, I don't go on the internet, like, sure. Like that's just a, I'm sure you don't, you know, you know, you roll your eyes, but at least like that sounds like something somebody says. The best way to learn a language, immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. 
Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. I don't even come close to looking at the internet. Not, you know, nobody has said that. James Fegan, show me Pedro Grafal's phone. Yes, do it. Photographic evidence. If it's a Nokia, then I'll believe him. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that will do it for our first quarter grades of the 2023 season. We'll see on how the second quarter goes for the Chicago White Sox. Pew I'll Research Center, 7% half. of Americans don't use the Internet. Who are they? Yes. One of them is Pedro Griffal, apparently. Evidently. Evidently. Jim and I are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll preview the White Sox next series as the homestand continues with the Cleveland Guardians coming to town. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, now it's time to look ahead for the Chicago White Sox as they start the second quarter of the 2023 season with a three-game series at home against the defending American League Central champs, the Cleveland Guardians. And the Guardians, not off to a great start. They're 19-21. They're three and a half games back of the Minnesota Twins. They have won their last two games. But boy, they are having a terrible time offensively. Their offense is averaging three and a half runs per game. They're hitting 228, a 303 on base percentage, and slugging just 342. That is a team 645 OPS. That is the worst in Major League Baseball. Of course, Cleveland is pitching pretty good. On the starting front, they have a staff ERA of 4.08. That's 13th in Major League Baseball. The bullpen, even though Emmanuel Class A has not been perf- perfect this year, the bullpen has a 3.14 ERA. That is the third best in Major League Baseball. So you could already see one storyline. The White Sox are going to need to jump out early against the Guardians. Offensively, Jose Ramirez, just four home runs and 22 RBIs, but he is hitting 285 with a 364 on base percentage and slugging 457. However, out of the qualified hitters for the Cleveland Guardians offense, only two batters have an OPS higher than 700. It's Ramirez and Steven Kwan. Everybody else is an OPS below 700. That's how much the Guardians offense has been struggling. Your pitching problems for this series on Tuesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time. You're going to notice a trend. For the White Sox, it's to be determined against the Guardian Shane Bieber. Wednesday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it's to be determined against Peyton Battenfield. Thursday, getaway day for the Guardians at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it's to be determined against Logan Allen. And that's the first storyline other than knowing what phone Pedro Grafal uses, Jim. Grafal, after Sunday's game, suggested the White Sox could be shuffling the pitching rotation around. Any ideas how he could move guys around the starting rotation for this series against Cleveland? 
I would think that, you know, based on performances, like based on just what we've seen, like you'd think that maybe Michael Kopech gets a breather or maybe, uh, you know, Lance Lynn gets a breather based on the, how they've pitched or, you know, Cle- you know, Clevenger's pitched fine, but given his uh, stamina issues since coming back from Tommy John surgery, perhaps he gets a little bit of a second wind. We've seen, you know, Griffal try to be proactive in certain regards about resting guys, load management. Uh, so that's why I don't have a great feel for how it's unfolding, but I would think like if you want to try to get your team, uh, out of this rut and try to get them, you know, if you're looking at five to seven days at a time, like Rafal chooses to, like, if you want to go five and two over the next seven, I would think that would mean more starts for, uh, Giolito cease as if he, as he's pitched and, you know, Clevenger while trying to get Lynn and Kopech back on track, uh, the way you think they can, and maybe that's more rest. That's kind of how I think, you know, he might be approaching it, but, you know, if if Lynn says that he's feeling fine, he wants the ball, like I can see him pitching on normal rest and Kopech being the guy who takes a breather given just how, you know, he needs to get that second pitch back on track. Don't have a great feel for it. I mean, technically, Clevenger will, his fifth day would be on Tuesday. So could he go Clevenger Tuesday Give Lynn an extra day off. Go, go Clevenger, Lynn, and then maybe Cease on Thursday, and then push Kopech a Kopech a day back to Friday. This is where it gets really odd. Like to be determined when you haven't had like this is your first day off in weeks for the White Sox. Like I, I just don't know how much flexibility Grafal has here in shuffling the rotation around. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty limited, but just based on like, it's a case where if he had like three horses and two, uh, you know, guys clearly bringing up the rear and, 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 and struggling, like it'd be pretty clear, but given just how everybody besides Giolito has been mediocre at best, uh, that's where it just gets murky and it probably comes more into about how a guy feels, not necessarily his numbers and like cease throwing the ball. Well, like I could see like trying to, uh, maybe uh, leverage that against Kopech, who might need a breather, given how many guys he's walked. Like that's a case where uh, I, yeah, like I said, don't have a great feel for it, but the options are are limited, like you said. So the Cleveland offense, as I've highlighted, not very good to start the season. So in these three games, they're going to score like 20, run, 20 runs, right? Like they're going to yeah, average I mean, six or seven runs a game. The White Sox have almost twice as many homers. Yeah, well, 44 I mean, to 23. But Cleveland didn't hit a lot of homers last year. But still, the I mean, the White Sox are 16th. So the White Sox are bottom half, you know, barely bottom half, bottom half, and still have twice as many homers as the Guardians. That's that's an issue. I mean, Josh Naylor is heating up like he had a big week, uh, kind of like a Luis Robert-like week in terms of like the, uh, the impact of the homers that he hits. So he's a threat. You know, Jose Ramirez is always a threat. But, man, I look at this offense and I still think, man, you know, like, do they kick themselves over not trading for Matt Olson when he was rumored mm-hmm. to be a target or Sean Murphy? Like if you picture Sean Murphy there for Mike Zanino or Matt Olson there for, I guess it would be Josh Bell because Josh Naylor would probably be there in the, in the DH mix. Like that offense looks so much different. Yep. But they have all their prospects, so they have that going for them. But uh, yeah, this, I guess they chose to pay Ramirez and then went you know with prospects everywhere else. But I think that really has kept... Uh, the immediate, yeah, the, the immediate danger of their offense uh, 
it's really going to be more of a slow unfolding in terms of figuring out this core over Ramirez's extension. And I think they could have taken a shortcut if they got, you know, either Olsen or Murphy, like was rumored. So with how well Cleveland's bullpen has been pitching and how poorly the White Sox hitters are against relievers, is this series all about the first five innings, Jim? Like if the White Sox don't have the lead in the first five innings, it's over. So going back to what you said about Tuesday being a big day for Yasmani Grandal in terms of his uh, health, being able to be part of the regular lineup going forward. Like he and Mankata probably have the most to say about how effective the White Sox are against bullpens because without them, it's so easy to match up against them. Basically just like good righties do most of the work because Grandal and Mankata were expected to do the heavy lifting as lefties. You know, maybe Gavin Sheets is there like, and he's okay. Like he has competitive at bats, but like not a threat to like turn a game around with regularity. Um, that That's, I think, what, you know, why this offense has been so susceptible. Also, Tim Anderson factors in, because Anderson normally doesn't have platoon splits. Like he's pretty, uh, you know, he's pretty effective against righties in terms of like being able to hit them. Um, he doesn't hit them with the same power that he hits lefties, but he hits them. Like he gets on base, helps the offense, keeps moving. When he gets on base, he can run. Without him being at full power, like he also hurts. So I think, you know, those three... If they can, you know, be in the lineup and also, you know, be a little bit more impactful with their swings and their actions in the batter's box and the base paths, like maybe they'll be able to do more than they have been doing against relievers. But if they're not there, then, yeah, it seems like it's a pretty short game and more about like the first five or six innings unless, you know, the White Sox bullpen, which has also been decent as of late and and given that Cleveland has a weak offense, if they can post zeros, then it's really more of a matter of like, who has the lucky swing in innings eight or nine uh, that that provides a difference. But I think, you know, I'm expecting to be more of these, you know, I don't know if you'd call any game a nail biter right now because the White Sox are uh, on pace for 108 losses. Like, uh, you know, right now it's just not really, none of these games register as like, uh, you know, uh, cardiac events. Uh, But given just how high leverage, we'll put high leverage in, in terms of anything, resembling tension. I think you will see more uh, high leverage games just because neither of these teams uh, seem to have the ability to distance themselves, whether it's because their offense doesn't have enough firepower with regularity or because of some like timely pitching blowups uh, that uh, negate a decent offensive effort. Yeah. I'm expecting a pretty tight series. A lot of three, two, four, three games in this series between the white Sox and the guardians. Again, the Guardians trying to catch the Minnesota Twins, trying to get closer to them, try to get back to 500. The White Sox are trying to flush the first quarter away and try to have a better start to the second quarter. May is going better for the White Sox, but it's not going that great uh, as the White Sox are trying to win their next series as they drop the series against the Houston Astros. And, you know, the past week, losing three out of four to the Royals and then coming home and losing two out of three. I mean, they go two... In five, right? Yeah, two and five the, the past week after going four and two in the previous week. So the White Sox are six and seven in the month of May. We'll see how this next week goes for the White Sox as they have three games against the Guardians and then three games this upcoming weekend at home against Kansas City to, to conclude their nine game homestand. But 
with conclusions, that concludes this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We'll have White Sox wake-up calls later this week to recap the Tuesday and Wednesday game. And then Jim and I will have Sox Machine Live recapping the Cleveland Guardians series and previewing, again, that upcoming weekend series against the Kansas City Royals. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Those are also our Instagram handles. So if you're on the gram, you can follow us there. You can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. We also upload our episodes into our YouTube channel, which you can listen and watch at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. If you do YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. It helps us a great deal. If you enjoy work and want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash socksmachine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. And when we have new Socks Machine swag in the Socks Machine store, they're the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash socksmachine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. <laughs>